one day Jesus was out teaching. And as he was teaching, there were people gathering all around him. And one of the groups that had gathered over in the corner was some experts in the law. And one particular expert in the law just decided it was time to ask Jesus a question. And he said, good teacher, let me ask you a question. You've been telling us about a lot of things here today, but what must I do to receive my eternal inheritance? Jesus looked back at the man and simply said, what do you think the law says? He said, well, I I believe it says that we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and we're to love our neighbor as ourselves." And Jesus says, well, then you've got the answer already. You go. You act like that. You live like that, and everything will be all right. And he said, but I've got one more question, teacher. Just who is my neighbor? Jesus answered, there was a man that decided to take a trip from Jerusalem. And as he was leaving Jerusalem, it was on that trade route, that dangerous passage down the mountain of Jerusalem. He came across some robbers who were hiding in wait on him. And the robbers came out and they took him and they grabbed him and they, they stripped him of his clothes and they beat him to the within an inch of his life and they threw him over in a ditch. They took all of his money and they left him for dead. A little bit later, a priest decided he was walking down that road, and as he was walking down that road, he noticed there was some some, some barely audible cries for help, and there, there was this, this this person that was over there in the ditch, and not wanting to defile himself, the priest crossed over to the other side of the road, and he walked on without helping. A few minutes later, a Levite was walking down that same path, and he too heard the barely audible calls of this person in need and not wanting to defile himself. He also walked right on by. But then a good Samaritan was passing that way. And seeing the man who had been beaten and robbed and stripped looked at him and was filled with pity. And as he was filled with pity, he got down off of his donkey. And he went to the man and he took some of his own clothing and wrapped his wounds and helped to make him decent. He picked up the man and put him onto his donkey and he took him to an inn. As he got to the inn, he told the innkeeper, This is the money that I have. I lay it to you to take care of this man, and I will come back later to make sure that everything is paid for so that he gets well. Jesus then looked at the expert in the law, and he says, In that story, who was the neighbor to the man in need? The expert in the law hemmed and hauled a little bit, danced around for a second in his mind a way that he could say it and said, I suppose it would be the one who had compassion on the man. Jesus simply looked at him and said, Go and do likewise. Luke chapter 10 tells the story of the Good Samaritan and it's very familiar. In fact, as I was telling that story, most of you in your mind knew the end from the beginning. You knew where we were going. There wasn't anything shocking or surprising to you in that. 
but yet it is still a powerful story. Over 30 states have good Samaritan laws to protect people that come upon a situation where help is needed and they do their best effort to help even if they cause trouble. Now, I don't know whether you saw this or not, but there is a battle brewing in California. Now, what's kind of crazy is there are always battles brewing in California. Amen? Because the Supreme Court of the state of California ruled that this person could be held liable for offering assistance in an emergency when she pulled someone out of a car without doing it in the proper medical way. That happened in December. And what's interesting about the story is that was so appalling to Democratic leadership in California that they have introduced a new law called the Good Samaritan Law that would protect people like that in the future. Because within us, we all think that we ought to be people like that. We ought to be helping like that. We hear the story of Jesus and we think immediately that's the kind of people we ought to be. And as I read the story this week again and asked myself the question, what is Jesus trying to teach us here? I realized that in spite of the fact that's who we want to be many times in our lives, that is not who we are. Luke chapter 10. We're going to take it piece by piece and kind of walk through this because I want us to see some things that Jesus is teaching in this parable. First of all, I want us to see what the setting is. We talked last week about not being able to understand the parable of the two sons or the prodigal son or the prodigal God without understanding what the background is. And so we have here Jesus being challenged. And the first challenge comes from this teacher, this expert in the law that says, what must I do to get my eternal inheritance? Now, I know there it says eternal life, but in their day, in their culture, there was this idea that if you lived well enough, if you did good enough, if you did enough good things, if you followed the law closely enough, if you followed all the ritual closely enough, that eventually you would be able to come to a place where you would be in the age to come and you would receive an eternal inheritance. He's not asking so much about the state of his soul. He's asking about the state of his future stuff. Now, before we get too judgmental here, we have some songs about that very kind of thing, right? We talk about that mansion in glory. Anybody here watch Bill Gaither ever? Some of you? I watch Bill Gaither occasionally. I know I'm in the demographic they don't reach out to necessarily. Bill Gaither's always talking about this old home ain't going to last any longer, right? Much longer. We're looking forward to that inheritance. Well, basically he's saying, listen, I want to know what's coming. I want to know how I get there. I want to know what I need to do. And, And we don't know whether this is an honest question or if it's tricking Jesus. From later we kind of get the idea he's trying to put Jesus in a corner. There were some people that didn't think there was eternal life, and so he could have been trying there. But he's basically, I think, setting Jesus up for the second question. But I think it is interesting that Jesus boils down all of life to do commands, right? Now, this is a little aside. This is a little introduction. This is a little bit before we get into the parable of the Good Samaritan. But it's interesting. Whenever Jesus is asked any question about the most basic thing, about the most important commandment, about the way to get eternal life, he comes back to the same thing, right? Two things. What are they? You love God and you love people. You love God and you love people. And if you want to boil down our Christian existence into two commands, that's it. And we'll see people say, well, that, that sounds 
almost like we can do it. That, that's not the idea here. The idea here is if you want to see how you are spiritually, if you want to see your spiritual maturity level, just ask yourself the question, how are you loving God and how are you loving people? Now, we're going to talk in a few minutes about the fact that Jesus makes you understand that you can't do one without the other. All right? You can't get an A in loving God and an F in loving people. It doesn't work. They're together. And so this teacher of the law says, listen, what do I need to do? And he says, you need to love God. You need to love people. And then he says, because the end of that phrase is love your neighbor as yourself. He says, okay, let me ask you a question. Then, Who is my neighbor? It was a trick question. Because there were competing ideas out there about who their neighbors are. If I were just walking on the street tomorrow and I just said, who's your neighbor? Most of you are going to say, well, John and Kathy live next door. And Bill and Sandy live on my other side. Right? This means yes, no, right? I mean, you think your neighbors, you think they're the people on my side. Well, the Jewish idea, the neighbor there that they had discussed and debated and theologically assessed was, it was just one of us. It was another Jew. Most people thought that a neighbor was just another Jew. But, well, some of them even narrowed it more closely than that and said, no, it's not just a Jew. It's a Jew that's doing everything a Jew's supposed to do. And so the only people we have to love are Jews that are doing exactly like what we're doing. In fact, the only people we have to love are people who are just like us. Now, as we continue on a little aside here, if we look at congregations across America, if we're honest with ourselves, most congregations are made up of people just like each other. Look around at everybody, all right? Just look around. Okay? You notice anything similar here? Any similarities at all? We're pretty similar, right? Amen? We're, I mean, you may not like the fact that you look like the person around you, but you kind of do, all right? And the reality is one of the problems in our churches today is that we can become insulated in ourselves. So Jesus, and I love this, doesn't answer his question directly. I'm currently reading a book about how you make your ideas stick in people's minds. And one of the things they say is that if you want think people to remember something, you take it out of the abstract and make it real and personal and something they can hold or take hold of. And what Jesus does is he takes this abstract principle because what the guy wanted was, what is a neighbor? Well, a neighbor is someone that meets these criteria. Jesus doesn't do that. He says, listen, let me tell you a story. Do you think the guy wanted a story? No. The guy didn't want a story. He wanted an answer. But this is what I love. Is this a story that stuck in people's minds? You hear? All right. Did it stick? We have good Samaritan laws in America today. Now think about this. This all started with a guy traveling out in the wilderness with a few people around him, a few hundred people, over 2,000 years ago, telling him that he's going to tell him a story. And today, people in California are mad because the Good Samaritan law got repealed. So it's stuck. And what he shows us is some basic principles of life. And the first thing is, Jesus wants us to see the wrong attitude towards others. That's not hard to spot in the story, is it? I mean, you just look and 
we, we see this. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, you realize that when you read the Bible, it always says that people went down from Jerusalem and up to Jerusalem. That's because Jerusalem was on a hill. All right? When Jesus is teaching, when he talks about being a city on a hill, he's talking about, in some ways, this idea of being where we can look. In some ways, he's referring to Jerusalem, which is supposed to be the city of God. But the idea is it ought to be a place to where people can look up to. Okay? And so Jerusalem was a place you came down from or went up to. And this man is traveling. He falls into the hands of robbers. How? We don't know. Sometimes people get all worked up on the details of this story. That's not the important thing. The idea is he got robbed. All right? They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, half dead is one of those words that doesn't seem to make sense. Right? I heard somebody the other day said, you can't be sort of pregnant. You either are dead or you are pregnant, but somehow, I don't know, Scripture tells us he was half dead. I think that means that he was literally on his way to death. That if someone had not stopped and helped him, he would have died. Life was passing from him. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, now we got the priest, that's the preacher, we got the Levite, that's the, depending on your interpretation, the music minister or a deacon, whichever. I mean, it's just what it is. I don't... And when he came saw the man he passed with the Levite when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. Don't you love how these guys don't even walk right past him? they got to get on the other side of the road. It's pretty easy to see the wrong attitude, isn't it? Man half dead, needing some help, and the religious leaders of the day decide they're not going to help at all. They just walk right on by. Let me tell you, you know, a lot of times when people tell this story, they equate it to today and they say imagine someone has a car break down on the side of the road and one guy passes by a preacher passes by and a music minister i don't think a car on the side of the road is as impactful as it should be for us here's the reality the the idea is that we pass people every day that are in deep need of someone to minister to them we pass people in our offices. We pass people in our homes. We pass people in the stores. We pass people all over the place. If you want to know if people are hurting, just start asking. I encountered this a couple of weeks ago. I was checking out of the grocery store. And as I was checking out of the grocery store, I asked one of those questions that people ask and you don't want an honest answer to. How are you doing today? You ever ask that and not want an honest answer? Amen? You just want to know that you're friendly, all right? I just ask, okay? All I want to hear is I'm doing good. Hope you're doing well. We'll see you. I ask, and the cashier told me. It's been a horrible day. Well, I hate to hear that. Well, that wasn't the end. And God just kind of convicted me right there in the moment. You know what? You were sent here to listen. Now, the truth is, Every fiber of my being, and I'm I'm talking to you as a pastor in confession, every fiber of my natural being wanted to get my groceries and get out of there. Amen? You been there? Support time for me. I need to know I'm not the only one, all right? But God just kind of put in there, do not pass them by. 
are the wrong attitudes here. These two guys should have known better. One priest, and you know, you can look at all the explanations. This isn't a real story. It's a parable. And so Jesus didn't give us the internal thinkings of these guys. We don't know why the priest didn't think or didn't go by there. I mean, there are lots of reasons he could have thought not to go. The point is, he didn't stop. Whatever the reasoning, good, bad, and different, he didn't stop. And sometimes as Christians, people that are saying we're living for the Lord, we don't stop, we pass on by, and then we try to come up with the reasons we passed on by. It doesn't matter, because we passed on by. Now why do we not stop and help when we know we're supposed to? Let me give you three things real quickly. First of all, we don't want to risk anything. We don't want to risk anything. Maybe these guys thought if I stopped to help him, the robbers might still be around. There was some rules in the, in the Jewish tradition that priests who were walking or priests that were serving could not defile themselves by touching a dead body. And maybe they thought he's not dead yet, but he's on his way. And if I touch him and he dies, then I'm going to have problems. I don't know what it was, but he didn't want to risk anything. In fact, when we stop to help people, it will cost us something. It will. A few months ago, we had some evacuees from New Orleans here. And somebody met me in the hall and was asking me some questions about it and just wondering some things. And one of the questions they asked is, do you think they might tear up anything? I said, yeah, they probably will. They may tear up a whole lot of stuff. But that's not the question we ask to determine whether or not we help. I remember one time I was in a, I was ta- I took a group to Centrifuge one year. I was young. I think I'm young now. I was young. I was 21, year old, 21 years old and took a group of high schoolers to Centrifuge. I was the oldest counselor that went from our church. So I take them to, to, to camp. And as we're at camp, we're sitting around, and we're talking about stuff. And it was a camp where we did some service as well. And we're sitting in there, and we're talking about how much we ought to serve. And someone's actually teaching on the Good Samaritan. They say, how far should we go? And I remember one guy that was a counselor there stood up. He was from another church. And it was something that, you know, those things that stick. This is one of those things that stuck. And he said in the midst of that meeting, you know what? Sometimes I hear people say, well, I may give to somebody, and they may take advantage of me. He said, in the midst of that, I want to stand up and say, so what? He said, listen. He said, this is one of the realities I know is that Jesus Christ gave his life for me and there are many times in my life when I take advantage of his sacrifice. And if he would have asked the question when he was on that cross, am I going to do this if people are going to take advantage of me? If he would have decided to climb down, which he had all power to do, I wouldn't have what he has given me through his life and death. You're going to risk. It's going to cost One of the reasons we don't stop is because we don't want to risk. Here's another reason we don't stop is because we don't have compassion. I love what it says about the Samaritan, which we're going to talk in a minute about even the phrase, a good Samaritan. But it says, a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, 
And when he saw him, he didn't pass on the other side. He didn't get as far away as he could. He didn't hurry his feet along so that he might not be seen. It says when he saw him, he took pity on him. Another understanding of that, another translation of that is literally he had compassion on the man. And when I read it, he had compassion on the man. My mind immediately turns to the times in the Gospels when it says Jesus looked at the crowds and had compassion on them. You know what the word compassion means? You ever thought about that, what the word compassion means? We use the word passion a lot around here, but in real understanding, originally the word passion meant suffering or severe. That's why we call it the passion of Christ. It was His suffering. And the word calm, now I know you didn't come in for an English lesson, but here it is, all right? The three letters C-O-E mean with. And so if you take passion to mean suffering and you take calm to mean with, that means you suffer with, you engage with, you understand what they're going through. The truth is that most of us in this room have inoculated ourselves against having compassion. Why don't we stop? One is we don't want to risk. Another is we don't have compassion. Here's the third thing. Our religion gets in the way. Our religion gets in the way. Jesus' real point here is that these two religious figures didn't do what they were supposed to do. And whatever reasons they had, they probably were leaning on their religion, first of all. Their religion prevented them from doing it. Let me just tell you something. Christianity is not a religion. It's all about a relationship with the Lord. But in churches across America, we've made it into a religion that prevents us from doing what God's called us to do. These guys said, listen, I can't do this. I've got to serve at the temple. I've got to go serve the people of God at the temple. I can't help this man. Listen, we, uh, we've got to keep moving on. I, I, can't, I can't stop to help this man because I've got important religious stuff to do. I mentioned the evacuees, and that's just an example. But uh, the, another person was talking to me about some stuff, and they were excited about what we were doing. And I remember them saying, you know, if we have this building and all we use it for is to take care of ourselves, we're not doing what God has called us to do with the building. Amen? I mean, if we have this building and all we're doing is making sure that our projects are taken care of, that our services are done, if we make sure that people are comfortable here, if we make sure that we got rooms for what we want to do and we're not reaching out to people using the building, then the building is not being used as God has called us to use the building. Religion's getting in our way. One of the uh, sensations that's sweeping the country is Facebook. All right? Some of you have heard of Facebook. Some of you own Facebook. I'm... I have a profile on Facebook, have lots of friends, but uh, yesterday, uh, actually, I guess it was Friday, I uh, was on Facebook and saw where one of my friends from Union was on there at the same time, and when they're on there, you can chat at the same time, okay? Some of you, it's just going over your head right now, that's okay, all right? Just bear with me. So I started talking to him, chatting with him. His name's Jimmy, and Jimmy is a uh, guy that used to be on staff at Irwin McManus's church in California. Some of you have been through Chasing Daylight. Uh, he's on staff with him, is now in the motion picture industry, trying to be a Christian influence in motion picture industry. So Jimmy's an interesting guy. Jimmy and I went to conferences together at school and knew each other at Union, and so we were just talking, first time we've talked in a long time, and 
we were talking about tons of issues. We went back and forth between old friends and theological issues and things coming up and things that are in the past, and we're just all over the place. We were talking about reaching out to others, and he just wrote on his uh, back to me, uh, recently lost a friend that has chosen a gay lifestyle. And so I just said, well, what do you mean by that? He said, well, I don't mean that he died. I mean that he has turned away from the faith completely, and he was close to coming to faith in Christ. So we kind of investigated, and I said, well, what, what caused that to happen? And he said, Proposition 8 in California. Now, some of you that are familiar with Proposition 8 know that it was a proposition to make marriage between a male and a female, and that's all. And Jimmy and I had this discussion. It's amazing the discussion on Facebook you can have because I just, was, I just said, well, how do you feel about that? And he said, I'm torn. He said, because I believe strongly that marriage is between a man and a woman, and that's it. And we need a law on the books to say that. At the same time, the way churches promoted it sounded like they hated anyone that didn't believe that. I came back, and I looked at my outline, and I thought, there may not be a better example today of a place where our religion is getting in way of our compassion. Where we are so strong. And listen, the biblical evidence is there. Homosexuality is wrong according to Scripture. And we need to proclaim that. But we can proclaim that without being hateful. Our religion gets in the way. Jesus wants us to see the wrong attitude that comes with others. But the other part of that is He wants us to see our right attitude towards others. Look what He says. Verse 33. But a Samaritan. Let me tell you about what this story, I told you last week, the prodigal son, the prodigal God, the tale of two sons, that there was a similar one in Jewish tradition. Well, this was similar to them in a way that that there were all kinds of jokes in their tradition about a priest and a Levite and then a common person. All right? They were kind of the lawyer jokes of the day, you know. Kind of the Baptist preacher, Methodist preacher, Church of Christ preacher jokes. You've heard those, right? You know, some of you acting like you had. You've heard them. You've told them, all right? You've sent them on email. I know. I've got some of them, okay? Well, there were these jokes out there about a priest and a Levite that were bumbling and didn't do what they were supposed to. And then a common old Jewish person came along and did exactly what they were supposed to. So these people are thinking, here we go again. The priest didn't do it. The Levite didn't do it. It's good old normal Jew. But then he says, a Samaritan. I just want to tell you what the reaction in that place would have been. Would have been, boo, hiss. It would have been, not a Samaritan. But we know he's not going to do anything good. It would have been similar to yesterday. I was, I was at that game yesterday. You know the game. I was in the stadium, in the rainy, cold, all that. And there's a particular player for the Ravens that used to play for the Titans. A receiver. And he likes to talk a little bit. He likes to jaw a little bit. He likes to push around. He likes to be who he is. And it was amazing how a guy that used to be cheered was booed in that stadium. There was a time when we were at commercial break, so y'all didn't hear it. And he was jawing with the referee, and people just in crescendo started booing. And everybody knew what we were booing. We were booing him. I was going home yesterday from the game. 
State of depression, shock. Turned on the radio. First three callers. All I want to say is I hate Derek Mason. I'll hang up and listen by. First three callers. And I thought, how, how crazy is this? Literally, when he walked out from the sideline, people started booing. That's the kind of dislike there would have been for the Samaritans. But you're talking about a football player. This is religious, deep-seated. You try to think of it in modern days, and there aren't good ways to do it, but it would be like being over in Israel today and telling this story and saying, and a member of Hamas walked along. It's like being in Iraq, and you talk about a U.S. soldier that's lying there after a, after a mine has gone off, after something has exploded, and he's laying on the side there, and two units of soldiers from America pass by, and an extremist from an Islamic faith stops to help. To, to continue with the, what I talked about earlier, it would be like being in Nashville, Tennessee, and telling this story, and you talk about someone being hurt and a Baptist preacher went by, and then the Presbyterian minister went by, and the people that stopped to help were two male partners. I did an exercise with a group from this church where we rewrote the Good Samaritan in Bible study, and it was interesting because when we got to this part, everybody ended up making the Samaritan a good guy, somebody we all liked. But the Jews, when they heard this name, would have gone, that guy doesn't get anything right. But it says he had compassion. I mean, if you don't get anything else out of this story, realize that what moved him was that he was filled with compassion. That our love of others should move us to do something. And not just anything. Look what it says. The third thing we want to see here is that Jesus wants us to go out of our way to help others. In fact, his point here is the way that we go out of our way to help others says a lot about our relationship with God. If I were to ask most of you in this room how you were doing spiritually, most of you would go immediately to how many times you read the Bible, how many prayers you had said, how many times you've been to church, all those stuff things. If Jesus walked in and said, I want to know how you're doing spiritually, you'd start to say that. And he goes, I don't care about that. I want to know how you're treating the man in the ditch. If Jesus walked in, he wouldn't care how many times you had read the Scripture if you're not helping the man in the ditch. We live in a culture where Christians have isolated themselves so much that we know everything the Bible seems to say, but we don't do what the Bible tells us to do. And it says, not that we're supposed to help in some way. This isn't, I gave $10 to somebody that needed some place to go for the night, so I feel good for the next six months. This is, he went out of his way to help. Look what he did. He took him. He bandaged him his wounds. Now, let me tell you something. He didn't carry band-aids with him. Alright? So how is he going to bandage up the wounds? He's going to tear his own clothes. He's going to take his own shirt off, tear it up, so that he can bandage his wounds. He wasn't traveling with a first aid kit. He took pity on him. He bandaged his wounds. He poured on oil and wine. That was not, I mean, that was used for medicine stuff back then, but that's not why he took it. But he put the man on his own donkey. If the man's on his donkey, what's he going to have to do? Took him to an inn and took care of him. Sometimes they get the picture in the Good Samaritan and they just kind of drop him off. See you later. 
He took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins, gave them to the innkeeper, said, look after him. When I return, I will reimburse you for extra expense. My understanding of that, my reasoning for him doing that is, I believe that's all he had. I don't think this is a down payment like, you know, I'm going to give you this. I don't want to overpay, so if there's more to the bill, let me know. This is, this is everything I got. It says, look after him. When I return, I'll reimburse you. Somebody has said that if you want to know how your relationship with the Lord is, you need to answer this question, or this is what Jesus would say to you. I want to know about the man in the ditch. I want to know if you're involved yet. I want to know if you got off your evangelical donkey and got inside the ditch with the man. And that's the question for the day. Are you doing something for the man in the ditch? Four things that you can do. First of all, you can demonstrate kindness to strangers. Just as you're going along in your day, demonstrate kindness to them. Secondly, you can see the value of small acts of kindness. Don't think you have to start big. Just do small acts of kindness. Let me say this, that this has to be something that is ongoing, that you do on a regular basis. This isn't something that you do once every six months and try to placate your conscience. You do it all the time. I read this week a story of a man that was building a house in Vermont, and he wanted to build a natural well out there, and he asked the guy about it, and the guy said, somebody that was in there, he said, you dig 14 feet down, and then you pump it every day. So the guy went and he built 14 feet down. He started pumping and he finally got some water going. And each day as he pumped it, the water rose a little bit more. And it got to about 8 feet and it just stopped. No matter how much he seemed to pump it, it just stopped. So he just left it. He went away for about 3 months, 4 months while the house was being built. Came back when the house had been built. Went out there to the pump. First day got water out. Second day got water out. Third day no water. He tried and he tried and he tried and he couldn't get any water out. And finally he said, I've got to spend the money to build another well. So he spent $3,000 to get another well went in. He called the guy and said, listen, I did exactly what you said, but the well didn't work. He said, well, tell me what you did. So he told him, he said, did you pump it every day? And he said, no, I didn't pump it every day. He goes, well, that's your problem. If you don't pump it every day, it's going to dry up. The reason I tell you that is because these acts of kindness, this reaching out to the people in the ditch, is not something you do every six months. It's something you do on a daily basis. You figure out ways to put it into your life on a daily basis. You support people that are in need. You encourage people that need you to encourage. Third thing is the practice love that goes beyond normal kindness. Go out of your way. Spend extravagantly. Do more. And then lastly... Give glory to God. See, as Christians, we're not supposed to just do things just to do things. We do them for the glory of God. And here's the last thing. We need to realize that when we do things, it brings potential rewards. Jesus didn't get into the rewards in specific here, and this is kind of moving from, from this story in specific to the story in a larger place. But the idea is that if we will begin to do what Jesus is talking about here, we will see things happen. We will open closed hearts. We will change our reputation as a church, and we will plant seeds that will bear fruit in this community. We're going to open closed hearts, change our reputation, and plant seeds that bear fruit in this community. 
you've heard me say before that when people are asked what their opinion of Christians is, that the things they come out of their mouth immediately are that they're boring, hypocritical, and judgmental. And the reason that people think we're boring is because we often are. Amen? I'm not talking about the last 20 minutes. I'm talking about in general. All right? We often are. The people, reason people say that we're hypocritical is because we often are. And the reason people say that we are judgmental is because we often are. You know how we change that? It's not going out and going, we are not hypocritical. We are not judgmental and we have lots of fun. That's not how we do it. But you know what? That's how we're doing it. Come listen to us. We are not hypocritical. We have lots of fun around here, and we won't judge you at all unless you are different than us. The way we change it is we help people in the ditch. Now, who's in the ditch? There are people all around you. People in the ditch are the young mother whose husband's decided that the grass is greener on the other side. People in the ditch are the lady who has had a pretty good life of health, but suddenly her health is failing her. People in the ditch are the family of that lady whose life is suddenly seeing her health fail her. People in the ditch is the college student that just graduated from college in this wonderful economy and doesn't have a clue what they're going to do. People in the ditch are people that had a pretty stable job a year ago, but something happened, and now either they don't know what they've got a job or they don't have a job, and this economy is killing them. People in the ditch is the person with a sin that they don't bring out in public, but is secret and is killing them from within. People in the ditch are sitting on your right. They're sitting on your left. But let me tell you this. There are a whole lot more of them out there. And the story of the Good Samaritan is we don't have to bring them here to tell them about Jesus. You see, in churches all across the land, one of the things that happens is we have a come and see approach. You come and we'll tell you. The truth is that Scripture says that we are to go and tell. Now, when you leave this place this morning, you are entering into a place where there are people in ditches all over. The question is, are you going to reach out and help? Let me just say before we close that Jesus intended this to be a personal thing, not a corporate thing. One lady who tried to get help from some Christians one time wrote this. She was turned away by a ministry. She said, I was hungry and you formed a humanities group to discuss my hunger. I was imprisoned and you crept off quietly to the chapel and prayed for my release. I was naked and in your mind you debated the morality of my appearance. I was sick and you knelt and thanked God for your health. I was homeless and you preached to me the spiritual shelter of the love of God. I was lonely and you left me alone to pray for me. You seem so holy, so close to God. But I am still very hungry and lonely and cold. What are you going to do for the person in the ditch?